Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you in person. Great to be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, Happy Father's Day for those of you that are either father figures or perhaps somebody who spends time with, you know, some kids. Um, We're really grateful for you and grateful for the opportunity to be with you. We do have, um, as Ben mentioned, a present. And so um, if you want to pick up something as you leave, you're welcome to do that, but we just really um, invite you to do that. And so whether you're here in person, whether um, you're here in the parking lot or online, we're really glad you're here today and glad to have an opportunity to, um, to be with you. Uh, Pastor Josh is out today. He's um, on a much-needed break, and so we're glad that he's taken that. And um, in case we haven't met before, my name's Gary Arntasoni. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and um, it's a privilege to be able to meet you if we haven't met before would enjoy doing that. So we're in week um, three of this series now called Better. And as you can see, I've got my graphic up here, you know, that we're looking at what's better in our lives and how we understand that. And so in week one, we actually looked at the Good Samaritan. And, and we found out there was a little bit of a change to this question about who is my neighbor. It's not necessarily who is my neighbor as much as it is who can I become a good neighbor to, in week two, we looked at Mary and Martha, and we learned that, um, that Mary in particular um, was really working at putting Jesus as sort of the first priority in her life. And the way that she did that was that she actually sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him and took on the role of a disciple, which was really sort of um, courageous for her to do in that, um, in that culture and in that time. But that's what she did. And today now, we're going to look at what does it mean to actually choose, and I'm going to turn on just a couple of these lights, not many, because um, there's an awful lot of them. Plus, they they blink like if you want them to. See, like that would really get to you after a while, wouldn't it? All right, so anyway, um, but we're looking at how do we learn to actually choose prayer over performance? And and I'll just say, uh, and I'll say this later too, that... um, you know, I think the, the reason we sometimes choose performance is because we really want to control things. And prayer oftentimes becomes a little bit scary to us. We're not quite sure, you know, how we enter into prayer and what it means to, you know, to actually trust that God will act. But as we do begin to pray, we actually realize that God is faithful and that God will act and be with us. So the disciples, and what I want to do today is I want to give a sort of a, I guess I'd call it maybe a primer on prayer. Maybe it's 101, 201. You know, just get us thinking about what does it really mean to pray and how do we enter into that? And, and look at this model of the Lord's Prayer as a way to dive deeper into prayer as a means of communication with God. So I'm going to start off by just giving us some sort of pointers on prayer. Um, telling us a little bit about, you know, where I see, you know, God inviting us to pray, and then also looking at, you know, what some of the basics of prayer are. So, so starting with that, you know, prayer, when it's sort of boiled down to, um, to the basics, it's really a conversation with God. And the thing about that is that a conversation always requires our time and our energy, it's not just something that we sort of, you know, haphazardly engage in, but it, it includes both times of talking as well as times of listening and silence. And so prayer is pretty important for us. And in its simplest terms, prayer has been defined this way as sort of a, um, a way of communing and being in communication with God. It's a way for us to learn that God is with us and that God walks with us. And through prayer, we oftentimes have times of adoration and thanks to God, 
Uh, we also can make our requests made to know to God. We get a chance to intercede for others. Uh, we learn more about God's character and God's will for our lives. So, so prayer is very, very pivotal in terms of how we come to understand who God is and how God wants to work in our lives. And, and I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but, but prayer is actually a very um, uniquely human activity because there's no other part of God's creation that's actually invited into prayer, but we are. We're invited to actually be with God and to be with our maker and our redeemer. And so prayer is really a privilege for all of us. And, and the foundation of prayer is not based in, um, on, in who I am, but it's, really, it's actually based in who God is and that God welcomes my prayers. Jesus said this, he said, you know, pray in his name uh, on the basis of our connection with him. And, and the fact is that God loves us and knows us deeply and that we can bring our whole self to God because of that, because God is actually with us. And it's not just that part, but Jesus also modeled prayer at significant times in his ministry. There's, there's times when he specifically goes out to pray. Mark 1, chapter 30, or excuse me, 1, verse 35 through 39 says, In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, when they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. And he answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. You ever have that happen before? You know, you sort of carve out a little bit of time for prayer, and the next thing you know, everybody's trying to call you or trying to get a hold of you. Uh, maybe that's a sign of the fact that we're disengaging in something else in order to really engage with God. Or here's another example. Jesus also spent significant times in prayer when he was thinking about calling the 12. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says, he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with them and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. You know, it's interesting that verse, like, because one of the things I always skip over when I read that verse is I skip over, I, I get the, you know, sent out to proclaim the message, have authority to cast out demons, but what I often miss is that he called them to be with him. They called him to be with him. So what are some of the basics of prayer? Again, like I said, I'm going to do sort of a primer. Well, I think one of the first things about prayer is that God actually seeks us out. Um, God loves us and wants to spend time with us. God is personal and has given us prayer as a way to deepen our relationship with God. And so prayer is actually a way of being in a, a loving, trusting relationship with the living God. Henry Nouwen, who um, is a spiritual writer that I've read a lot of, he has this quote and it says this, God is always doing something. Prayer is to enter into that activity. So you see, prayer itself is a kind of discipline. It's the kind of thing that God calls us to. It requires our attention. And we have to work hard, now and says, to actually set aside that time to be with God. Uh, he says, whether I like it or not, whether I feel like it or not, whether it satisfies me, you have to go back to that place of solitude with God and claim who you are. You are the one that God loves deeply. And that's an important thing for us to really claim. So prayer changes us. 
But even more than that, um, Mary Slessor, who was a missionary, said this, that prayer is the greatest power God has put in our hands for our service. So we come to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and I want to invite you to listen deeply as I read this passage. Um, Listen for what God would say to you today about prayer. So Luke 11, 1 says, 11, 11, 1 says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray together. So God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your word today, and that you would be lifted up in all that we do and think and say. In Jesus' name, amen. So here comes this request from the disciples. They said, you know, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And it's interesting because there would be times when Jesus had modeled this, like he would go away and he would pray privately. And so they finally have this opportunity to ask him, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's kind of a startling request because the disciples would have actually known all about prayer. I mean, this would not have been a new thing for them. Um, They would have grown up with prayers offered throughout the day before meals. Um, They would have prayed before the beginning of each Sabbath. Um, And they also would have prayed when they went to the synagogue. So they weren't just asking him what words to say. The the request is actually a lot deeper than that. And Jesus' word to them is actually pretty revolutionary because it reminds them that they have a father who cares about the outcome of their lives. You have a father that cares about the outcome of your life. And so he said, when you pray, pray, Father. And we find in this prayer sort of a structure that's there. There's a couple of sets of petitions. Um, there's an address, and there's the, what's called the thou petitions. They're about God. But there's also these other set of petitions, which are about us. They're the we petitions. So we see right away in this prayer that God's inviting us into a relationship that exists between us and God. We're invited to be a part of that. Frederick Buechner said this, and I I love this quote. He said, um, it takes guts to pray the Lord's Prayer if you really mean it. It takes guts if you really mean it. So let's take a little bit deeper dive into prayer and think about it. You know, prayer is always initiated by God. It's always a response of the Holy Spirit's work in us. It expresses our relationship to God. And and intimacy itself actually requires paying attention and being in time in somebody else's presence. Prayer is a relationship of communication and communion with God. And in prayer, God actually invites us to be our honest, real self. We can be confident in prayer because it's rooted in God's promise that God is continually always working for our good, regardless of whatever situation we find ourselves in. And in the end, God's will wins out. To pray is to participate in willing God's will. I was thinking about this, and, you know, prayer actually calls us to begin to look at life from a different perspective. I heard a story just a little while ago about a father of a newborn And he said that, you know, when I go to her crib and just look at her, 
um, I don't have to do a thing. I just, I just sort of study her and I get caught up in the moment. And he said, I don't know where the time goes. And I think that's a good indication of how prayer works. We're invited by God to, to enter into the wonder of all that's around us, to get caught up in the moment of wonder and praise. And so God calls us, invites us through this Lord's Prayer to an, a life with God. And the significance of this prayer is pretty profound. Um, For the earliest of days, it's occupied a place of honor in the church's liturgy and also in its life, um, called the prayer of believers, or even more appropriately, it's called the prayer of the disciples. It holds a place because, first of all, Jesus taught it, but also because it has a breadth and depth of the content. Tertullian, who was a third century um, Latin theologian, said, um, that the Lord's Prayer is a brief summary of the whole gospel because in it you find all the movements in and out of what's important to God and also what's important to us. The Lord's Prayer is communal. I mean, it it calls us to be the body of Christ together. Uh, When we talk about God being Father, we are all children of our Father, whether we acknowledge it or not. The Lord's Prayer is experiential because it's an activity of prayer where we bring our whole lives, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the pain, the sorrow, the suffering, the joy. We bring all of that before God. And in prayer, we're given the the opportunity to be honest and truthful. We come expecting that prayer will make a difference, that the God to whom we're praying is a God that is alive and active with us, present with us. And so we're invited into this time of praise, but also this time of petition. Praise, this expression of our joy and gratitude in God's presence. Petition is an expression of our yearning, (laughs) you know, our desire, our need for God, that we're, we're praying, God, show up. God, do what you do. In this biblical text here that we're looking at in Luke, there's also a version of that in Matthew. And um, about the time when Matthew and Mark were being composed, Matthew and Luke, excuse me, the Lord's Prayer was being transmitted into two forms. And the only difference between them is that um, Matthew's version was longer than Luke's. But I think there's something for us to hear in that too, because when you actually start to look at what it is that, um, that God's doing and how God's using this, when you start to boil down Luke's version, there's a reason why Luke's is a little bit shorter. You know, the Lord's Prayer is basically an attempt or an example of asking God to be God, to be in charge, and to do things. So Luke's gospel um, was written to um, the Gentiles. Matthew was written to the Jews. Luke may have been writing to people who had never prayed before. Maybe they'd never even heard this before. And we know, you know, that Luke is this investigative journalist, right? He's been going around. He's been making sure that everybody understands what's going on. And here, he reminds us again that these may be people that have never prayed before, these Gentiles. But Matthew was writing to people who maybe needed to learn a new way to pray. And so this cry of God comes out. And, you know, there's lots of questions that surround prayer. Um, questions such as, you know, is prayer actually an attempt to change God's mind or somehow to persuade God to be, you know, intervene? But prayer is not like that because prayer 
In prayer, something happens when we pray that doesn't happen when we don't pray. Or we get hung up on things like this, like, you know, do I have to have a strong faith so that prayer will work? Or do I have to have a good or a righteous life? Do I have to have a lot of knowledge about prayer? You know, understand it inside and out. Do I have to use the right methods? But Jesus really says, um, no, you need to be sincere. Simply mean it. Um, it's not about praying in the right group at the right time, you know, somehow doing something magical that makes it happen. And the point is this, that prayer is not about us. Rather, it's about God. It's God's willingness to be in a relationship with us so that we can know God's love and care. The disciples ask about prayer because they've seen Jesus praying. There's been times when Jesus has used prayer as a way of refocusing his mission uh, to be reminded of who he was. Um, so he gives us this model prayer so that we can understand what's important to the heart of God. And understand this, that prayer is not a work, but it is a gift. It's a gift that's given to God, given from God to us. And so in prayer, we open ourselves to God and begin to see things from God's point of view rather than just our own point of view. So we come back again to this address. Jesus starts off and he gives this notion. When you pray, start by saying, Father. You know, the Old Testament refers to God as Father about 14 different times. It, it's a sign of intimacy and respect. Uh, like a good parent, God is near and involved. And Jesus invites us into this relationship that Jesus actually enjoys with the Father. In relation to this Father, we are God's children. We are God's offspring. We are God's people. N.T. Wright says this about prayer. He says, there are, of course, too many things to pray about. That's why it's important to be disciplined and regular. If you leave it to, leave it to the whim of the moment, you'll never be a true intercessor, somebody through whom prayers and God's love is being poured out into the world. He says this, the Lord's Prayer is not just a loosely connected string of petitions, but rather it is a prayer for people who are following Jesus on the kingdom journey. It's a prayer for people that are following Jesus on the kingdom journey. And so it starts with Father. How has the traditional sort of rendition of Father influenced your prayer? You know, here we are, it's sort of a moment of truth. We're, we're on, here on Father's Day and, you know, the question comes, what kind of father have we been? You know, how involved have we been? Uh, or the other flip side of that is sometimes we've not had a good relationship with our own fathers. We've allowed, you know, sort of a sense of alienation to set in. Or, but today, God's inviting us to let God teach us how a good father can be. And so prayer is always this exploration into the life of God. And the ultimate purpose is that we would know God and be known by God. But the question comes down also, um, to which God are we praying? Because that's important as well. Are we praying to sort of a, a passive deity? Um, somehow somebody who's distant but really not that involved in our lives? Do we look at God as sort of a grantor of wishes? That somehow, you know, it's like a genie in a magic lamp. We rub the lamp and poof, you know, all of a sudden God gives us what we want. But Jesus says here, 
when you pray, pray Father. This is a personal God. Jesus said, pray to God because God is the one who cares for you. And so this Lord's prayer is essentially a cry for God to be God, that God would manifest the love and peace and justice that's found when God's rule is complete. And verse 2 continues and says, hallowed be your name. Uh, May God's name be hallowed. It means literally to be set apart, um, that God would be holy. And it reminds us that God is not like us, that God is different. And yet at the same time, desires a relationship with us. Martin Luther said this, he said, I know of no teaching in the Bible more disturbing than the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, because in it I ask to make his name holy in my life. It's a prayer request that diminishes all my other agendas and pulls down whatever else I may want to place prior to God's honor in my life. God, may your honor, your glory, may you be hallowed in our, name, in our lives that God is set apart. God, may you be set apart in my life. And it goes on then, and verse 2 continues and says, your kingdom come. In Jesus, the rule of God has entered into human history. The kingdom of God has drawn near. And so it's a call also to personal transformation. It's a call to change to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, to to start to think about things differently, to start to act in different ways, to start to evaluate our relationships and see how it is that we understand God's love. It's it's really a whole kind of shift and reorienting toward the kingdom of God. And so these first three petitions show this urgency for the redemption of God's fallen and rebellious creation. But the next continue to help us to see how God is at work. When we pray your kingdom come, we need to be willing to be radically altered. We have to be willing to let God do what God wants done. And then we come to this shift, the we petitions. These times that move from your will, God, now to what it is that I need. And so part one's directed to heaven and God's concern, but Part two now starts to sort of move towards earth and our needs and our concerns. And the qualities of life that are found in God's kingdom are a transformation that actually includes our everyday existence and our everyday needs. And so verse three says, give us each day our daily bread. You know, there's a kind of normality and commonness in bread. Uh, We all need to eat. Um, Maybe a better translation might be, give us bread for today. Um, Our everyday bodily needs are important to God. And eating and drinking itself is um, is actually founded in the fact that God is the source and sustainer of all of life. God actually meets us in this journey. But it also points to a kind of deeper hunger and thirst that we have. It's a hunger and a thirst for the wholeness that's found in God's kingdom alone. Praying for daily bread causes us to take a realistic inventory of our actual needs for survival. (laughs) You know, the reality is we really need very little, and we can trust God for our needs. 
but we're invited to pray for our needs, whether they be spiritual or material, intellectual, emotional. And the reason for that is because God cares about the, the details of our lives. Matthew 6, 31 verse through 33 says, don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. And so God cares about our needs. But there's a deeper need also that God knows that we need. And that is the need for forgiveness. Because without it, we're lost. And so the verse goes on, verse 4, and says, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. You know, forgiveness actually reveals the depth of our inadequacy. It's, it's a way in which our unlove is confronted by the love of God. And it's interesting because Luke uses this word sin. It means to miss the mark. It's actually a, a term that's taken from archery where when you don't hit the bullseye, you've missed the mark. But the reality is that we've all missed the mark. We've all missed what it is that God wants from, for us. And sin itself causes a kind of alienation. Uh, it's a violation of our relationship with God. It distorts creation, ruins human life. Um, it becomes a barrier that actually separates us from God, from our neighbor, from nature, from ourselves, from life itself. And so because of that, Mortimer Arias says that we live in a state of alienation because of sin. And only divine forgiveness can liberate us from this alienation and loosen sin's grasp on us. So forgiveness is an important thing for us to think about. At the heart of Jesus' teaching lies this command to forgive others. And that word luo, which is um, in the Greek, means to actually let go, to, to let go of something, to let loose of it. But you know, letting go of something is a decision. It's a choice to relinquish our resentment. And we receive forgiveness for our sins by admitting them through confession and then letting God loose them through forgiveness. Martin Luther said this, what we're really praying here is, Lord, forgive me and then assure me of the fact that I am forgiven by empowering me to forgive others. How is it that we learn to forgive others? And then the last petition in verse 4 is, and lead us not into temptation. And it does prompt a whole question. Does God tempt us? Where does temptation come from? You know, the classic sort of theological outline used to be this, the world, the flesh, the devil. These are the things that we find, you know, that we're always in battle with. We're, we're worried about, you know, how is the world going to affect us? How does the flesh affect us? How does Satan affect us? And, and yet at the same time, we're called to be God's people. And the question comes down to this, does God tempt us? Are we tempted by God? James chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 says, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So remember always that God is never our enemy, but rather God is always our advocate, the one that is with us. 
So the question then comes, but where does temptation come from? Where does it originate? And James goes on to say this in verses 14 through 17. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. So this idea of temptation means to somehow cause peril, enticement to sin, to put to trial or test. And, and we know that we all face inner temptations and outer trials. And the trials oftentimes or tests have a way of strengthening our faith. But temptation at its core is about not trusting God. And so this is a prayer for God's saving faithfulness, that God would come and rescue us in the time of trial. And the experienced reality of, of temptation relates to the temptation that we feel or the, the, the oddness we feel, this tension between where we are right now and what it means to actually live life in God's future kingdom. So what do we do with all that? I mean, I know that's a lot of heady stuff and you gotta somehow unpack it, but Richard Foster actually gives some good points on this. He says that, um, you know, we should learn to pray even when we're dwelling on evil. And yet, don't we most of the time sort of avoid that when we're dwelling on evil? He says, if you're waging an interior battle over anger, lust, pride, greed, or ambition, don't isolate um, those feelings. Don't keep those things from prayer. Instead, talk to God honestly about what's going on inside you um, that we know may be displeasing to God. We can lift even our disobedience into the arms of the Father because God alone is strong enough to actually carry the weight of those problems that we're facing. He goes on and says, sin to be sure separates us from God, but trying to hide our sin separates us all the more. The Lord writes, Emily Griffin loves us perhaps most of all when we fail, but we get up and we try again. So what are some of the, you know, the factors in your schedule? What are, um, what are the things that work best for you when it comes to thinking about prayer? Is there a certain time in the week which you find yourself drawn to pray? Maybe that's something you should be attentive to. Or uh, what factors in your schedule actually work against prayer? Sometimes maybe keeps you sort of away from a time of praying. What have you discovered that helps you to start finding more time to pray? Or what strategies have you found that are helpful in carving out times to pray? Um, how can we encourage each other to be a praying people together? You know, I was thinking about this this week and um, thinking about um, how, um, you know, how great it's been that Kristen White has continually been publishing our prayer list. And if you're interested in being on that prayer list, let me know because we'd love to get you, um, get you connected that way. Uh, but every week or every two or three days, there's a new prayer list coming out of things we can be praying for each other about. How can we encourage each other to deepen a life of prayer? 
Henry Nouwen said this, he said, those who live prayerfully are constantly ready to receive the breath of God and to let their lives be renewed and be expanded. So maybe one of the things that you could begin to do is simply to ask the Spirit to teach you how to pray. Um, Maybe go through this Lord's Prayer and look at what it is that God's calling us to do and how God's calling us to to enter into that. And and along with that, you know, one of the things we've been talking about here is, you know, trying to discern what it might be for you to take the next step with Jesus Christ. Like, where do you feel God's calling you and how can we come alongside you and help you in that next step? In his book about spiritual disciplines, John Ortberg uh, talks about prayer as interrupting heaven. You know, it's like we get this sense that there's something really going on in heaven, and if we've got to pray, we interrupt it. He says, that's actually not the point. But he does say, how do we learn to pray? And it's interesting because prayer really is a learned behavior. Um, Nobody's born an expert at it, and no one ever masters prayer. But in order to begin to pray, you have to have a couple of things. The first thing you have to have is you have to have a time that you regularly pray. And the second thing is you need a place that you pray. And those things are important. In fact, um, Lynette Martin says this, you know, uh, I would advise starting by just spending five minutes a day in prayer. Um, And she says this, it may feel impossibly short, but it's better to start with a short time Um, that's established than to begin with a a longer one that we might find would be impractical later. It shouldn't be longer on one day because it feels nice or shorter on another because the mood takes you. Um, Even if you feel great enthusiasm and want to go longer on one day, restrict it to only five minutes until you get the discipline of prayer down. And then she says this, it can be done. And here's the kicker. She says this, after some days or weeks, assuming you're human, you'll be tempted to quit, right? So the first thing we need is this time, an actual set-aside time that we decide we can pray. But the second thing is we need a place. And we need to be attentive to the setting in which we're going to pray You know, Jesus got up very early in the morning while it was still dark, and he left the house, and he went out to a solitary place, and there he prayed. But he also taught his followers to do that as well. He said, come with me by yourself to a quiet place. Get some rest. And and then he went with them off to a quiet place to rest. Jesus took care to find places that were free of distractions, places where he could concentrate and center in on who God was. So find a quiet place. Sometimes um, lighting a candle as sort of a focal point or maybe having you know, a flower that you look at, something like that might help. And Richard Foster says this, he says that as we bring ourselves before God, just as we are, warts and all, like children before a loving father, we open our hearts and make a request. We don't try to sort out the good from the bad, we just tell God how frustrated we are. Uh, we tell God how frustrated we are with the coworker at the office, the neighbor down the street. We ask for food, favorable weather, and good health. And you may wonder at offering God prayers that seem so trivial or even selfish. But here's what Foster says. Nothing kills prayer faster than when I pretend in prayer to pray for wonderful but remote needs that I actually have little or no interest in. 
So prayer always needs to be something that's coming out of the very center of our hearts. You know, simple prayer was actually one of the most common types of prayer in Scripture, and Jesus himself teaches that when he says, you know, pray for our daily bread. It's a simple prayer. And C.S. Lewis said that, you know, we have to lay before God what is in us, uh, not what we want to be in us. There's a real authenticity that's needed in prayer. And the key to praying is learning to be fully present, honest with God. Um, Does your mind ever wander when you pray? I know mine does. Um, But over time, I've learned that actually, if my mind is wandering to something else, that maybe that's the exact thing that I need to center in on, that that's the thing that God most wants me to prepare or to pray about. And Henry Nouwen says, you know, when we go to pray, sometimes our thoughts jump around in our minds like monkeys jumping around in a banana tree. It's a pretty good image. So at the beginning of prayer, it's important to take a couple of minutes to actually let the monkeys sort of settle down. Um, Take a few breaths. Allow your mind to slow down. Uh, Maybe focus again on some kind of object. Maybe whisper Heavenly Father a few times as you begin. You know, uh, as a session of elders, or uh, our elders of the church, we've been reading Richard Foster's award-winning book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. Uh, You may want to pick up a copy of that and actually read along because we've been learning a lot about prayer. And and one of the things that um, Foster talks about is what he calls simple prayer. Simple prayer, he says, is when I pray what's really on my heart, not when I wish what was on my heart. And he says that it's better to think of these wandering thoughts as stepping stones to prayer rather than barriers. And so, so God calls us to pray. One of the most known forms of prayer is intercession. And, um, and actually, it's actually commanded most in Scripture. And Walter Wink has said that history belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. When we join in praying and intercessing for other people, we join in praying the future into being. When I intercede for others, my, my circle of concern actually becomes a little bit more expanded. I'm able to get past myself. But even more than that, when I intercede for others, God is at work in ways that I don't even know doing what needs to be done. So more than any other activity, prayer is a concrete expression of the fact that I am invited, that you are invited into a relationship with the living God. And so prayer is talking with God about what we're doing together. As Dallas Willard put it, through prayer, God knits the human heart together with the heart of God. I'm going to invite the band to come up at this time. And as they are, I'm going to tell you a story and sort of wrap this up. But um, If they're here, we invite you to come on in. You know, Richard Foster told a friend, um, told a a story about a friend who was walking to a shopping mall with his six-year-old son to return some items. And the boy was cranky and out of sorts, and nothing the father did would actually settle him down. When nothing else worked, the father finally scooped the six-year-old up into his arms, and he started to sing him a song that he made up. He's saying, you know, I love you. 
I love the way you, um, I, w- I love the way, um, excuse me, he began to sing, I love you, I love that you're my, my child, I'm glad to be your dad, I love the way you laugh, and he just continued to sing that song over and over to his son. And it was interesting because suddenly this song that the father was singing did something that nothing else could do. All of a sudden, the son's eyes got wide and his mouth closed and he cuddled into his father's chest and he started to listen all the way out to the car. And when his father put him in the car seat, the son looked up and said to him, Dad, sing that song to me again. Sing it to me again. You know, prayer is like that. With simplicity of heart, we allow ourselves to be gathered up in the arms of the father and we let him sing his love song over us. But it's even more than that, because see, when we pray, there's actually a shift that takes place. We, we pass from thinking about God as part of our life, and we start to realize that we are a part of God's life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that as we sing, you would hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing with us. The words of Christ passed down through generations. Son of God, teaching us to pray, echoed words, Father have your will, your will in me, completely, holy trust, the faithful in provision, amazing grace. Mercy.
Yeah. 